we begin, let's do a little quick little quiz. Um, a few little quiz, uh, see if you can answer these questions for me. Start with an easy one. What took place on the 9th of, uh, sorry, on the 11th of September 2001? 9-11 attack. Yep, that's right. What happened, you'll notice a bit of a pattern here, so you might be able to answer quicker. What happened on the 7th of October 2001? Yes, anyone? It was actually the beginning of the war in Afgan Afghanistan. Yes, but yes, that is, it is connected to those things. One more for you. So the uh, 11th of September, 2001, the 9-11 attacks. 7th of October, 2001, uh, the beginning of the war, the Afghanistan war. What happened on the 2nd of May, 2011? Yep, that's right, right, right. Yep, so that was when Osama bin Laden was, was killed. When bin Laden died, I don't know how well uh, you remember that, clearly or not, um, but uh, when bin Laden died in the United States, there was an extraordinary outburst of joy and delight and celebration. Young people, teenagers and young adults like yourselves, were cheering and celebrating in quite an extreme and surprising way to look, look on, in on. Um, it was this... this outburst of delight and joy and celebration in some quarters amongst young people um, and, and I remember at the time back in 2011 um, there was one older commentator who, who was reflecting on this phenomenon in the United States and they were saying you know when I heard that, that Bin Laden had been killed this uh, leader of Al-Qaeda and the, uh, orchestrated the 9-11 the attacks I thought oh well that's that then that's good you know, and then I turn on the news and see this outpouring. And why? What's what's going on? And at least this one um, American commentator, their their reflection on it was, if you had grown up, um, imagine that like when you were nine or ten, um, that's when, and you're living in the United States, and that's when the the attacks happened at the, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, and and, um, and so you were like old enough to really kind of get it and. But, but and to be scared about it, and to have nightmares about it maybe, and, and to have lots of questions to ask your parents, it really hung over you. It was like a, a cloud that hung over your childhood and early adult life. This fear of, suddenly it became so hard to get on an aeroplane. You're taking off your shoes in the United States in order to go through the, the checkouts and all sorts of things. And, um, and, and this commentator said, the announcement of the death of Osama bin Laden was like, for that generation, the announcement of the death of Voldemort. The, the, the evil wizard from the Harry Potter stories, or Sauron for a different generation, or perhaps Thanos for your generation. Um, finally, the great beast, the great monster, the great cloud of the Soviet Union falls. You know, uh, finally, this great enemy has been toppled, this cloud of fear and risk and doom and uncertainty has been blown away. What a relief. And if for Americans, the, the first decade of the 21st century, that cloud, that Voldemort, that Thanos, was Osama bin Laden, perhaps, then for the people of Isaiah's day, uh, back in the 8th century BC, we're going back a long way in time, that cloud, that Voldemort, that Sauron in their day was, um, was the Assyrian Empire. If you've been with us this semester and do, done some of these 
studies in Isaiah, you might be familiar with this, the four emperors of this great, great golden age of the Assyrian Empire with these terrific names, Tiglath, Pelisa, Shalmaneser, Sargon, and now Sennacherib. Across uh, four decades, four emperors, these great kings, uh, emperors expanded their empire and, and caused people to, to shake like trees in high winds, as it is said elsewhere in this book of Isaiah. A fearful thing. And that fear hangs over the whole book as people uh, try to find safety in all the right and wrong places. And tonight, as we come to a hinge section in the book, the first half comes to an end, sort of, half. Um, we, we come to the end of a string of prophecies, and then we get these four chapters of story. We had the first of those two chapters, 36 and 37, read for us. We get a, two more chapters, 38 and 39. These four chapters are like a hinge section in the book. And they actually present for us two major themes of all of the book of Isaiah. That the section that we had read, 36 and 37, is about faith in God in the face of political fear, military fear. Faith in the face of fear. And then the, the, the second two chapters, 38 and 39, um, show us instead pride that hints at the Babylonian captivity. Pride. Worldly pride, pride and accomplishments and wealth that hints at the Babylonian captivity. It's like the first couple of chapters look back on a big theme on the first half of Isaiah, faith in God in the face of political threat. And the second two chapters look ahead to the second half of Isaiah where the message becomes, what hope can there be when God's people are exiled in Babylon? And so it's this interesting little hinge section. Let's see how we go. We'll begin with looking at faith then. Faith in God in the face of political fear. Faith. What's faith? For a Christian, in the Bible sense, faith is confidence in a sure reality. It's confidence, it's trust in a trustworthy object. Trust in God, confidence in God, not human wisdom, human power, uh, human strategy or, or superstitions, but trusting in God, trusting that I can be saved by faith, rescued by trusting God's power, his kindness, his love, not my human effort or my religious performance, but confidence in the sure reality of God's promises. And at this time in history, around 701 BC, right at the end of the 8th century, this great empire, Assyria, dominating the ancient world, has come right to the gates of Jerusalem. That's 36 verses 1 and 2. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. And then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Now, it's interesting where he stops. He stops on the aqueduct. Now, you go, oh, that's, is that a pretty feature, like a tourist attraction? Stop to take some snaps? No, no, we're dealing here with a fortress city and he stopped at the water supply. <laughs> so it's a momentous, it's a flex, it's a threat. It's a, you guys are holed up in your fortress city, and I've put my foot down on the hose that gives the water supply to your city. That's what we've got going on here, right? It's a siege, trapped, we're going to wait you out. That's the threat. And we get sort of like a three-point sermon here 
the words of the king of Assyria and his military leader. Point number one. Unlike um, sermons in some of your churches, this won't all have begin with the same letter. I'm sorry about that. But maybe you can figure that out and come tell me after what they should be. But point number one, uh, military strength and military alliances are hopeless before the king of Assyria. That's verse 6, the field commander says. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Verse 6, look now. Are you depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it? Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. Trusting in human powers and strength is, is useless. Pharaoh, your alliance with Egypt is like leaning on a bendy straw. It's no good for you. Point number two. Assyria says to Jerusalem, the Lord, the God of Israel, and trusting in him is hopeless. Hezekiah has kind of made the Lord grumpy with you. Verse seven. I've been sent by the Lord, he says even in verse 10. And Assyria is greater than every god, including the Lord. Look how he he picks that up a bit later on down in verse 18. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has any god of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have have you rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save these lands for me? How can then the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Military strength and alliance is hopeless. Trusting in the Lord, the God of Israel, is hopeless. But, third point in the sermon, if you trust in the word of the king of Assyria, you will have peace and you will have blessing. Verse 8. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Come, though, make a bargain before it's too late, he says. Or verse 16. Don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take your land for your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Variations of this speech is recounted at length at the start of 36 and then recounted again a bit later in the chapter and again in chapter 37. Words, these great words, these words of threat, these words of promise, these words from Assyria, a powerful word. A word of shattered hopes. A word of peace and promise from the emperor of Assyria. It's fearful. It's a fearful time. You can get a sense of just how uh, terrible the circumstances that Israel are in when you read Hezekiah's reflection in chapter 37, verse 4. In 37, verse 4, he speaks about how Uh, there is a remnant at the very end. There's just a remnant that still survives. There's only a little bit left. There's only a teeny, tiny, little, it's the smallest little corner of the leftover bit of pizza left. Or it's the bit stuck to the bottom of the pizza box with the cheese. That's all that's left of us. We're only a remnant. We're only a teeny, tiny, we're a few grapes left on the, the vine. Precarious situation. How does Hezekiah respond? Well, his first response is to try and muzzle it, (laughs) try to deafen the ears to the word. Um, In verse 11, you see that Eliakim and Shebna and Joah uh, said to uh, to the field commander, 
please speak in Aramaic, that is the diplomatic language no one else understands. Speak to us in the diplomatic, the international relations language, um, since we can understand that. Don't speak in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people on the wall. Shh, in other words, Shh, we can talk about this, okay, but let's do it really, really quietly <laughs> in another language. <laughs> um, and, and, and the commander says, no way. All of you are in danger, so all of you need to hear it. And, and then he, he persists in speaking in Hebrew to, in order to terrify the population and get leverage there, right? It's interesting. Um, th this kind of echoes a theme in the book of Isaiah about how, um, how people also respond to God's word, that when you have an unwelcome message, you don't want to hear it. You maybe push it away in another language. You, you harden up against it and don't want to believe it. So there's an interesting little echo there. So Hezekiah begins by saying, shh, 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 let's try to hush it up. That, that's a dud strategy. And so then he, he laments and he seeks out God's prophet Isaiah. And that's chapter 37, 37 verse 1. When Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth. So it's a sign of kind of grieving or mourning. I guess in sort of modern culture, it might be not brushing your hair and wearing your ugliest sort of tracksuit pants and T-shirt that kind of thing. So that's what he does, right? He, he, he doesn't do his hair. And he, uh, he puts on his dirty trackies and his Ugg boots. Um, and, and he goes into the temple of the Lord. Uh, and he's sent a like... A, a Melbourne friend of mine actually posted a meme about, um, you know, how there's the roadmap out of lockdown for the Victorians. They also had a roadmap out of lockdown, which was gradually working your way out of um, uh, active wear at all times, active wear just when exercising, and then into normal clothes again. <laughs> this is part past the Victorians out of lockdown fashion. Um, anyway, back to the Bible. Um, uh, he, he sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, verse 2, and Shebnah, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth to the, priest, uh, uh, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. And they told him, this is what Hezekiah, the king, says. Uh, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. It's when children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he'll rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that still survives. They're scared. They're despairing. They're really worried. But they're pleading for help. Now, King Hezekiah is a good king, as, as far as kings in the Old Testament go. You know, if you uh, know someone who's going to have a baby soon or you hope to have a family one day, you could give Josiah a rest for a while and try on Hezekiah instead. Um, it, it's, it's one of the good kings of the Bible sorts of names. Um, but he's still just a human, a flawed, failed, frail, struggling human. And, and, and we see his, his faith itself is like a little remnant. It's... it's even the way he speaks to Isaiah, notice in verse 4, is pray to the Lord your God. It's almost like God is, Isaiah is God. Please, would you, won't you, might you, could you? Yeah, it's this, there's fear here in his faith. But in the face of these words of threat and promise from Assyria and words of desperation from Hezekiah, then we then get a word of promise from Isaiah, verse 7. Listen. Isaiah speaking, I'm going to put a spirit in him, in the king of Assyria, so that when he hears a certain report, he'll return to his own country, and there I'll have him cut down with the sword. You will be safe, you'll be kept safe, you'll be protected, and this threat will be brought low. So after the words and the messages of 
Assyria in chapter 36. We now get the words and the messengers of Hezekiah in chapter 37. Against the threats and the promises of Assyria, we now get uh, messengers coming to the Lord and we get words of promise from the Lord and threats to Assyria. The words here, it shows us the power of words, doesn't it? Power of words. People say 60 stones may break your bones. Uh, well, this is less what they said when I was a kid. They probably don't anymore because people realise how what a ridiculous rhyme it was. 60 stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's what we used to get told to say um, when I was growing up. But, but here, you could really finish that rhyme and say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can shatter armies and shape history. The word of the Lord in particular is a greater word even than the words of the emissaries of the great emperor of Assyria. The word of the Lord is a mighty word, a word which can shatter armies, topple empires, change the course of history. Words are powerful. God's words of promise and threat are powerful. Words of prayer, praise to the creator God are powerful. And so we get an even bolder response of faith after this little interlude that tells about how Assyria withdrew from the, the walls in verses 8 and 9, um, we then get uh, Hezekiah responding to the next wave of pressure. And he now seems more confident than ever in the Lord. We don't get any mention about Egypt and trusting in Egypt, that bendy straw. We don't uh, get any sense of having to go to Isaiah and ask him to pray to his God on behalf of us or any of that stuff. Instead, we have Hezekiah himself more confident now, it seems. He lays the letter of threat that came from the king of Assyria before the Lord, verse 14. He received this letter from the messengers and he read it and he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. You can do that too, you know. You don't need Isaiah to pray to the Lord his God. You don't need some preacher or priest or holier friend who's more holy than you to pray for you. You can get whatever that letter of threat or worry or whatever... Uh, stresses or anxieties or panics or fears or, or troubles or guilt, you can get that yourself and lay it before the Lord. Lay before the Lord in faith your troubles, your fears, your worries, your dreads, your demons. And he prays to the Lord in verse 15 to 20, Oh Lord God Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim and the angels, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the earth and the heavens. Give ear, O Lord, hear and open your eyes, O Lord, and listen to all these words of Sennacherib that he has sent to exalt the living God. He prays confidently to the Creator God. He prays for the glory of God, for God's glory, God's honour. Listen to this one slamming you, casting shade on you, insulting you, Lord. I want your glory. Prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. I want your name to be praised. Your name to be honoured, your kingdom to come. In my troubles, I want God glorified. <laughs> and I want to be rescued. I want you to be glorified in my rescue. Because the God of the Bible is the creator, the king of all kings and kingdoms and nations, because he's sovereign, ruling over everything, 
prayer can really actually change stuff. It's not the prayer to the, the polytheist gods where you go, oh, maybe that angel, that spirit, that God might help me if I'm lucky. Maybe that ghost or ancestor will help me if I'm lucky. No, no, no. It's a confident prayer in the God who definitely can hear and rule and act. Prayer is the way the God who rules the world works out his purposes in history. Verse 21, Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Israel, this is the word of the Lord spoken against him. Because you have prayed, now I will act. The way God works out his purposes, he's pleased to do it in answer to our prayers. Here's a great quote from one uh, writer, Alec Motia, who writes on Isaiah. He says, these two things are causally connected. Because you have prayed, this is the word of the Lord. Thus, the way of believing prayer is the truly practical way of dealing with the harsh realities of the world. I'll say that again. It's a really important point. The way of believing prayer is the truly practical way of dealing with the harsh realities of the world. What neither armaments nor diplomacy nor money could achieve, prayer has done. But, he points out, as, as we see a bit later on in the, in the prophecy there in verse um, 26 and following, but what the Lord is going to do in answer to Hezekiah's prayer is what he has planned of old. Here is the mystery of prayer. It is a means by which the Lord brings his eternal counsels to pass. The Lord performs his foreordained purposes in answer to prayer. The way God brings about his purposes in answer to prayer. That's the way he's pleased to work. That's the way he ordinarily works. Pray confidently. There's a great story in the book of Daniel where Daniel um, uh, reads in the Bible that the exile to Babylon will last only 70 years. And so in Daniel 9, he reads this. He looks at his calendar and so he prays. Lord, you promised the exile will only last 70 years. So now I pray in the exile. Prayer is confident asking God to act in line with God's promises. And so you can do the same. You can come to God and say, God, here's your promises, here's your purposes, and so I come to you, ask your will to be done according to your purposes in my life. And lastly, Isaiah, and we will just finish with the, the first couple of chapters this evening. Lastly, Isaiah. God gives, through Isaiah, a word of promise, and confidence, and hope. God's people way back then in the 8th century. He rebukes Assyria in verse 23, who is it you have blasphemed and insulted, against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. He speaks of the Lord's sovereign purposes, verse 26. Haven't you heard, King of Assyria? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it, and now I've brought it to pass. I was the one in charge of your successors when you ruined fortified cities and turned them to piles of stones and drained people of their power. I was in charge of that. I will be in charge of your downfall for judgment on Assyria will come. 28 and 29. I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me and because you rage against me and because of your insolence, king of Assyria, it's reached my ears. I'll put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and make you return the way you came. Verse 33 to 35. 
no arrow will enter this city. He won't come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, it will turn. He won't enter the city. I'll defend my city and save it. He gives a sign for Hezekiah in verses 30 and following. A bit like the sign way back when we looked at the, um, the virgin giving birth to a child and the prophecies to that rotten king Ahaz in chapter 7. It's a sign of future sign. I'm telling you this will happen and when it happens you'll see how I was in charge all along. Yeah? Promise and a sign for the true people of God. He'll preserve them, he'll sustain them, he'll keep them even to the brink. Even through trouble and trial and fear and struggle, he'll preserve them and keep them and hold on to them. And even this mighty empire will fall. It's, it's a remarkable event in history. We read about it in the Assyrian annals, as well as in the Bible here, that this emperor come right to the gates of Jerusalem, perhaps through a plague, it seems. Verse 36 and following, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. And he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one night, while he was worshipping the temple of the god of Mithrok, his sons came down and slayed him. And he's brought low. It's a really amazing story. It's a really interesting little diplomatic drama with an extraordinary ending of rescue as God intervenes in history and topples this great emperor um, and preserves a remnant. And it serves for us as a picture of God's purposes, a little picture, the next couple of chapters we don't have time for, but it shows us that it's not like Hezekiah becomes the great saviour king, the great son of David, the everlasting counselor, the prince of peace. No, 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 he's, he's actually got an ordinary side as well, tragically. Um, uh, but it's a little window into the fact that God still has his people. God still has his purpose. And through troubles and trials and through uh, empires rising and falling, through even what will come for them when he in his will does let them go, exiles them to Babylon. He still has his promises, still has his purposes, still has his people, even by the rivers of Babylon as they're weeping and longing for their return to Jerusalem. He still has his ways with his people. And so you hear now, whether you are, as, as we've been talking about tonight, in a time of plenty and joy and success and you're, you're killing it and the exams, bring them on and you're uh, your, your thesis, it's handed in and all the experiments went the way they were meant to and, and your, your love life's great and your hair's got that bounce and shine and, and you're, just <laughs> you're in the band at church, you're just the greatest thing there is, right? Even if it's good or if it's rough and it's hard and it's difficult and it's some, like some of the testimony that Irene shared with us about a really rough time in her life, in, in plenty and in want, God still has his purpose for his people as they cling on to him and as they trust in his promise in the powerful word not the words of kings and emperors and professors and diplomats and, and the alpha guys and alpha girls but the words of God himself the creator and the saviour there is a sure hope that he will bring them through not always spare me from illness and spare me from trouble but ultimately yeah he'll spare me from death itself Raise me to eternal life. Bring me into the new creation. 
for all the promises of the Old Testament become yes and amen in Jesus Christ, who is the great King, the Saviour King, the Prince of Peace, the great Son of David. In him, what we see glimpses of in the rescue of Hezekiah and Jerusalem, or the return from Babylon, we see in its final form in God's promises for the world to forgive sins, defeat the devil, conquer death, rescue people who trust in the Lord. So trust in the Lord, won't you? And keep trusting in the Lord, won't you? Cast your troubles before him, won't you? Boast in him and his glory, won't you? For he is good and his promises are sure. And if his words of promise are good and these words of prayer are powerful, then the word of that good gospel is one worth telling others, isn't it? It's worth sharing whenever you get opportunity. Lord, give me opportunity to speak of you to others, to invite others to hear of you. Hear your word. Spread the word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Almighty God, Creator of all, King of all kings and Lord of all lords and God of all gods. Our Father, who is in heaven, we glorify your name, we worship you, we worship you and your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus, God the Son, Son of David, Saviour and Judge of the world. You are our treasure. Apart from you, we don't have any good thing, really. You are our hope, our sure hope. You are our confidence, and you are our boast. How good that is. Keep bringing us to humble, repentant trust in you, and keep speaking your word of promise and hope, the word we have in Jesus of sins forgiven eternal life you're so good to us and we pray that you may be good to this world by bringing your gospel word of salvation to bless hundreds and thousands and millions in our world with the hope and blessing you give in Jesus Christ in his name we pray Amen